I was like a constant loser in a way, right? When you do door to door or when you do all of these like weird businesses, like I was so used to losing, right? I was so used to being like, hey, can I have $500 for these knives and not making any money or like selling door to door or like I even sold cars. I think I sold like half a car because the commission was split. So I, I literally was just like, like constantly losing and constantly trying. And I know that obviously that's what everyone keeps saying, but like, but it was true. Like I, I just learned to lose like at everything I almost touched, I lost. And so the fact that I got some success later on was, was great. But um, once you've become like this uh, lifelong loser, um, you can really gain some success because you're just really, really unafraid to try anymore because you know, I'm probably going to lose. And so when you go in and you get some success, it's pretty cool. Welcome to the Strive for More podcast. My name is Jared Hendry and I'm the founder of the Strive Accelerator. We are a group of young entrepreneurs that you've probably never heard of and we figured out that a community of like-minded people is the only way to ensure we flourish in business, in our relationships and in our lives. This podcast is dedicated to uncovering the stories of the communities around successful people that got them to where they are and in the process will break down barriers for you to succeed too. Our next guest is a serial entrepreneur and the founder of HonestDoor.com, a real estate search engine currently operational in Alberta and Manitoba, but expanding across Canada. Honest Door is currently getting more than 300,000 page views every single month and allows you to type in any address, either residential or commercial, and find out more about a property than anyone has ever known. He has also founded Bellinet Media, which was the largest independent digital billboard network in Alberta and was acquired by the Jim Pattison Group in 2012. He also has his own boutique investment firm where he focuses on tech and real estate investment and is also a venture partner at the venture capital firm Panache Ventures. He is a graduate of the University of Alberta and the University of California at Los Angeles. Please welcome our next guest, Dan Belostotsky. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. And let's just get right into it. Thanks, Jared. Thank you. Hey, thanks for being here. So I want to go back to your past and, you know, let's follow the timeline and, and work forward from there. So you started a business. It was a marketing business called Bellinet Media. It was in the year that you graduated university. That is a hard thing to do. And so I'd just like you to talk to us about that process. What was it like to actually figure out what kind of business you wanted to start? Um, yeah, Bellonet. So we were pretty young. Um, I'd gone right into school. So I don't know how old I would have been um, when you graduate university after about four years or so. Um, I was we were 36. Early, were you? <laughs> I was, uh, I was early 20s. And yeah, we started a business. I had, um, I had dreamed of doing a number of other things, but we started this business and I can't even remember how it came around. I think it was my co-founder at the time's brother, maybe even had suggested that, Hey, um, we were thinking of doing something in the advertising space. And he was like, Hey, why don't you guys do like digital billboards? I think they're, uh, you know, very popular going to be very popular. And at the time we were actually looking at taxi tops. I think taxi top advertising had just become popular. And I think they were all over Vegas and all over the big cities. We thought, Hey, this is great. We're going to bring it to Edmonton. I mean, obviously didn't realize that 
you know, no one really lives in Edmonton um, compared <laughs> to New York City, and it's not very dense. And so some ha- we even ordered a whole bunch of them. Anyway, didn't do it. Did Bellonet with digital billboards. Um, and really starting it was um, was kind of hard and kind of easy at the same time. I mean, it was easy because someone was already doing it successfully. So all we had to do is copycat what they were doing and we would be successful. So we literally did just that. I think we walked up to a digital billboard and we read right on the steel um, like post that the digital billboard is on where it was made. It said like RMG Outdoor. And then we went to the actual digital display and we saw it was built by Yesco Electronics. And then you could see the advertisers that are on it. And one was some bar down the street. And so we were like, oh, this is easy. We'll just call these places, see how much it costs to get one of these up and call the advertisers and, uh, you know, see if it makes money. And and it did. How did you even know to take that approach? Because that's a pretty sophisticated way of approaching things that I don't think most people find intuitive. I think it's not intuitive to walk by. Nowadays, I feel like people are very businessy. I mean, this was, I don't know how many years ago now. I mean, I I just turned 35. So, you know, maybe it was 10, 12 years ago. Um, I think that now if you like had a project in school and someone said, hey, here's a digital billboard, figure out how it works. I think people do it. Um, I think because the idea was incepted into our our mind that, hey, we wanted to do advertising and maybe digital billboards was a, it was a cool way to do it. Um, I think at that point it become it becomes easy or maybe it doesn't. Maybe I'm just, uh, you know, think that people do it. I mean, my whole life, I've always been curious on on who made how much money and mm-hmm. what business made what money or how much does that guy make or that woman make? And, um, and I would always figure it out. And I felt like if someone was like, Hey, I wonder how that company makes money. I, I feel like I would always be the one to kind of explain it. I mean, God knows if it was right, but that was my passion. Where do you think that came from? Um, I don't know. I think my dad was an entrepreneurial guy his whole life. And, um, maybe he was always curious and it kind of just rubbed off on me. Um, you know, growing up, he was always trying to make it. And so he had a number of different businesses that he would start and, you know, some would do better than ours, others. And, and they were very obscure and, and I'm happy to dive deep into anything, you know, more related to Bellonet or, or his life. But, you know, we immigrated from Russia to Canada when I was about four and a half. And like every other immigrant story, I mean, it's super hard for a while. And you see your parents struggle and um, you kind of just learn from that. What did you learn from your dad? Like, I think we've on the show, we've had quite a few immigrants that have gone on to do really remarkable, incredible things. And, and many of them attest that success to their parents, to how they witnessed their parents really have to work so hard to make ends meet. And many of them were entrepreneurs themselves. So, so how do you think that affected you? I don't, I see a lot of, you know, immigrant families succeed and some don't and some of the kids succeed and some don't. So I think it's hard to generalize them all. Um, I think that you look at your parents and you ultimately may become a version of that in your career. At least I think in some cases, if your dad was a doctor, you might get pushed into medical school. You know, if um, your mom worked on Wall Street, you might go into, you know, trading or something like that. Um, I just feel like as, as an entrepreneur, you're all like, sorry, my dad was an entrepreneur. So I kind of just felt like I couldn't 
every time I would try to get a job, something just kind of wouldn't work out. Maybe I just didn't have the stability or I never saw my dad, you know, coming home at 5.30 saying, hey, I'm home. I just never saw that part of it. So maybe I just didn't feel like how I could fit in. So I just sort of carved my own path. Um, but I, I think that so many careers now are also very entrepreneurial. So you can't take away from that. You know, I think, uh, you know, even being a real estate agent or a mortgage broker um, or a car salesman. I mean, those are all very entrepreneurial careers. I mean, maybe not a pure entrepreneur, um, but still kind of an eat what you kill. You mentioned that there was some hard parts when you tried to start Bellinet. What were they? Yeah, the hard parts were that I had actually got a really good job um, out of school and it was at TD in Edmonton. A really good guy actually ended up hiring me. I, I you know, emailed him. I was very persistent. And I think I was one of the younger guys to get hired. And um, ultimately, I kind of just fizzled out, I think, there. I was there for six months, and I, I couldn't wrap my head around the business. I was obsessed with stocks. I was obsessed with Wall Street. It turns out Edmonton is not Wall Street. Um, <laughs> that, that said, though, um, you know, I just really felt like, if I fast forwarded 20 years, do I want to be like everybody there? And and though they had marvelous careers and I'm, I'm sure some were wealthy and happy and whatever, I just, I just couldn't see myself there. And so I just had to move on. Um, it was difficult because we had no money and you need money to start a business. So I'm happy to talk about, Hey, um, you know, how hard is it to start a business? Like, I mean, a lot of people do not have the opportunity to start a business and, you know, and I'm lucky that I did because I think we, we had to apply for a loan early on and I think we needed to come up with like 30 grand. And I remember asking my parents for that money. So had that 30 grand never have been there or never was available for me, I, I didn't have a chance. And so a lot of people don't have that chance. So I don't want to say that you know, I'm remarkable because you know we started a business or something like that. And I mean, I've achieved some success in my life. I, I'm sure I haven't achieved, um, you know, by any stretch, like great, great success, but um yeah, I think that some people don't get a shot at it. And I think we were really lucky that at the time, you know, someone was able to write us a $30,000 check to get a loan. Um, and, and not everybody gets that. What kind of things did you learn through that first experience that has maybe translated through the rest of the businesses that you've started? Um, I don't know. Maybe that's a tricky question. I know it was very difficult. I'm going to almost go back a second. I think it was very difficult early on to convince our parents, I think that was a big one that this was going to be a good business and that, you know, our parents had to commit some money for us and that it was going to be okay. And, um, and at the time, I think everyone just kind of thought you were, you know, an idiot and, oh, you just want to be an entrepreneur and follow your passions. And, you know, um, anyway, I think there was a lot of people that probably in some weird way wished we didn't succeed at it. Um, <laughs> You know, like maybe friends, I'm not sure about friends, but but certainly parents. I think like in my my dad's dreams, I, I think he wished we would have failed and we would have, uh, you know, gone on and, and got jobs. It's funny how that always happens, but all immigrant parents that I've kind of chatted with or some immigrant parents have always dreamed of, you know, we've come to this country, we worked so hard, you need to become a doctor or a lawyer. So I think that was probably my parents' dream. Um, the fact that you're navigating a business at a young age and um, you know, you're starting to raise money and learn how the business side works. I mean, we were lucky to go from, you know, founding a company to actually having an acquisition, which was super cool. Um, you learn so much about people. I think, you know, we started it thinking we knew everything, like we did the math in Excel and, you know, everything turned out great. Um, but 
you learn so much about, hey, nothing's as ever, you know, nothing planned is, you never can follow your plan that well. And um, you learn that everything takes way more time and way more money and way more effort, um, all those things. And um, I think you're incredibly optimistic as a, as a kid and you're not as skeptic as you, skeptical as you probably should be. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of things. It's kind of difficult to really pinpoint it, right? It's kind of like when you finish school and someone says, you know, after four years of college, you're like, hey, so so what'd you learn? You're like, oh God, I don't know. Maybe I didn't <laughs> learn anything, <laughs> right? But you obviously did. It's just very hard uh, to put it into words. Uh, the mutual friend of ours that connected us in the first place, Dan, um, Tate Hackard, the founder of Zezun, uh, he mentioned in his university career, he was there just to, not just to, but in part to connect with other individuals that he could learn from. And so what he did is he told me that he would set up at least three coffee meetings and three phone meetings every single week for four years of his undergraduate degree with people from all across the country, all across North America that uh, he was interested in talking to. And these would be sometimes CEOs, for example, or people in the payday lending space or um, people in the HR technology space, which is the space that he's in. Um, and that really just blew me away because he did it so covertly that even his closest friends didn't really know about this. Yeah, I think at a young age like that, you're always hiding things from your friends just because, again, you probably don't want to be weird or you want to be accepted the way you were the day before you told people things. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't find university personally for me that useful. Um, you know, I kind of went into university. I barely, you know, I think I, you know, squeezed into university, which was, I was happy to do. Um, and I had friends and I thought it was like the right thing to do. And it, and it turned out that it probably was, um, but it's still weird. I mean, now it's like, you know, you do these applications for your, um, for your companies now and they ask you where you went to school and, oh, we can't give you certain grants or certain funding opportunities if you didn't have a college education. And, you know, those are the, obviously the wrong reasons. I mean, I learned what I, what I learned is I met a lot of great people. I think that was the best part. I don't, I never, you know, maybe Tate's a lot better than me setting up three meetings a day. Uh, maybe I wasn't mature enough to be doing that at the time. Um, you know, I loved going, I thought it was a lot of fun and I met a lot of great people and a lot of, you know, lifelong friendships. Um, but I can't say from, uh, I think the school is great too. So don't, I hope I'm not misunderstood there. Um, but I don't know for me in particular, if, um, you know, I got a whole lot of value from the learning. I actually know the dean, the dean of the business school quite well. So he's going to kill me for saying that if he ever hears that. <laughs> um, but, but I, I love the dean. I love the business school. I think it's great. But, um, you know, I wish there were probably more entrepreneurial type classes or, you know, real life people being brought in and explaining the struggle that it's not just like mastering this business plan and you got an A plus and that means we're going to all be millionaires after. I wish there was just a little bit more of that. That's probably what I would value more. So you eventually transitioned out of Bellinet. What was that like and, and how long did that kind of process take? Um, you know, Bellinet was a cool journey. Um, I think we ran it for a couple of years and I think actually closing the, the sale, uh, probably took another, at least another year. Um, so we had, you know, in the, in the process of it, we didn't know anything like, I mean, startup Edmonton is, uh, is very popular and startup Calgary is very popular now. 
um, they weren't really around or we weren't really connected into it. And, um, you know, for a number of different reasons, I think at first people are kind of scared. Oh, what if our company sucks compared to the other ones there? Or, you know, you get a little bit of success and you think, oh, I, you know, I don't need to be there. I mean, I'm way smarter than everybody else. But we didn't really have these mentors or any type of resources that would actually help us out. So um, anyway, I, I think it's a good idea for entrepreneurs to go to those places today. So you eventually sold Bellinet Media to, to one of the largest privately held companies in Canada. How old were you when that happened? I think we were about mid, mid-20s, mid-20s, 26, if I had to guess. And what was it like? Like, what was it like coming out as a 26-year-old? having built a business up and then sold it off. And now you're sitting there thinking, the heck do I do next? Or at least I imagine that you would have been sitting there thinking that. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable to actually get an offer from a big company like that and to prove that you did something valuable. Um, You know, if we just sold it to a bunch of guys that thought, you know, this was a cool business, it would be different, but, you know, selling to, um, you know, one of Canada's largest private companies um, was kind of like your accreditation stamp. I mean, it would be like if you're in Silicon Valley, possibly selling to Google um, because there's no outsmarting the best. So the fact that they saw value in what we did was was pretty cool. Um, so, yeah, I mean, going through that process and, and now, I mean, to be able to be on my second business now in like my 30s, um, or third, um, it, it's very cool to have gone through that. I mean, one important lesson, I think it was a takeaway and I only learned that after is like, you know, don't get me wrong. The, the business sold and it was successful and it was, you know, we got way more back than, than the original 30 grand. Um, so that, that part was really, really cool. Um, but someone told me later on, and I think it was a, it was a guy from Calgary who's, who's a friend of mine now, uh, Patrick Lore from Panache uh, Ventures. He said that, hey, entrepreneurs should be paid more um, because in your case, he was telling me that you would have sold for more money, but you were making you know, 50 or 60K, whatever we were getting paid at the time. And we were overworked and you know, maybe our other investor probably didn't want us taking higher salaries because he thought the more money that stays in the business, the better. But the problem with that mentality is that once someone wags that carrot in front of your face you um you go and (laughs) and you eat that carrot but if we were full and someone wagged something in front of our face which was obviously like an offer we wouldn't have taken that offer we would have sat comfortably and so you know maybe being too young we jumped the gun when we kind of did the financials a couple years later like oh man probably left a bit of money on the table um but i think most people who sell feel that way if that business is still relevant in today's world um but that's one thing that I kind of carried with me is like, hey, um, I want to make sure my team is 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 not hungry to sell. I'm not hungry to sell. And then I think you could really build a big business with that mentality. On the flip side, though, maybe I'll add one more thing is getting a win under your belt is also very important because once we had that, people started taking me seriously and said, oh, man, this guy's young. You know, he had an acquisition from a large company. Uh, this is so cool. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that is pretty cool. Um, but without that, it's almost like for some reason we applaud entrepreneurs with an acquisition rather than the entrepreneurs that are still running big businesses, um, which, which is wrong. I mean, obviously the ones running big businesses could make a far bigger business. Um, so there, I guess there's two sides to the coin on that one. So like you mentioned, you had that big success, you had the acquisition, but then I imagine you're left there thinking, 
you know, how do I make that next move and, and what do I go on to? So can you just describe how you decided on creating your own venture capital firm, Auto Capital, and, and kind of what that process looked like? Yeah. I mean, after you sell and go through some success, it's so hard to jump into everything because you start thinking like, oh, you know, this opportunity is too small or I'm going to do something bigger and and you get sidetracked really easily. So I think that next step and being able to find success for like almost like a second time, I mean, it's really tricky and it's really hard. Um, but auto capital, I wouldn't say is by any means a venture capital fund. Auto capital is, a com- is, is really my own private company that doesn't employ anybody. And it, it was just kind of a way that I could invest the proceeds that I had. And so I decided to invest them into real estate just because, I don't know, I didn't know what else to invest them into. Um, but we actually started, you know, going out there and I started investing into, into other things and really learning about a few other industries. So um, it's definitely an investment firm, but not per se, um, you know, a venture capital firm. We actually invested into a venture capital firm. Um, and I don't know why I always say we, I think I'm just used to trying to pretend that this is bigger than it is, but <laughs> it, it, it is just me. And um, I, I originally wanted to start cutting checks. I was thinking, oh man, I was going to start cutting, you know, $25,000 checks or more. I thought 25000 was such a small amount for some reason. I was like, oh man, these people are trying to raise 5 million. Why do they want my 25000 But then, you know, years later I found that, hey, a lot of like, smaller angel investors always only invest 25k but nonetheless i thought that i was going to do that and i went and spoke to a a few companies i actually wrote a check and um then i kind of started doing the math and i was like oh my god you know if i keep writing like whatever fifty thousand dollar checks um to all these companies i don't even know which ones are successful and why would there be successful companies in edmonton i mean i'm gonna run out of money um Mm -hmm. so then i kind of decided that hey i need to align myself with a company uh, like an actual proper VC that that knows what they're doing, and I can get exposure um, from the type of companies they invest in and their thinkings and why they choose the companies they do. So that was um, so that's why I kind of transitioned almost out of that uh, and started you know working closely with a VC company, which was Panache Ventures, and then um, I did a lot of you know other investing through Auto Capital into a lot of blockchain companies, which were at the time really blowing up. So that, that was a lot of fun. You mentioned real estate and, and obviously that's going to transition at a later point here into Honest Or and what you're working on currently. But I'd like to just step back and, and take a second to talk about that education that you went through to understand real estate better. So what kind of education did you go through? Did, was it some kind of formal process or, or was this just something you kind of learned on the side? Originally, like I was always very obsessed. I wasn't about to start putting in money into real estate and just be like, oh, that was a good investment or that was a bad investment. I mean, I I did know about real estate. I mean, my dad had gotten into real estate at some point in his career after he had, you know, finally had some money. And I kind of learned a lot from that process. And I mean, like everyone, I feel like everyone nowadays is so interested in real estate. There's so many shows and houses are coming on the market and people are so into design. Uh, So I feel like real estate has really encompassed us all, um, you know, over the last decade. Um, But my mantra for investing was like, hey, if I didn't know within one minute of barely doing any type of math or anything, actually, if that was a good price for that particular asset, then I shouldn't be the one investing in it because then that's just gambling. Um, 
And so that's, that's really what I did. I mean, I learned the market really well. I mean, what I did with Auto Capital is I, I ended up purchasing close to a dozen, if not more now, um, homes in a particular area of Edmonton where I actually live and all across the LRT lines. And there was a future LRT line going to be built and they were going to allow for higher density. And so I just you know, thought that, hey, this LRT is going to happen. This was a long time ago. Way b- and, and for the record, there is still is no LRT. So maybe I was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I thought, hey, this LRT is going to come within a couple of years. I mean, city council said so, and I'm going to accumulate all this land. I'm going to rezone it to high density. And I did a couple of different projects uh, within the area, and I rezoned them. And, and they were kind of interesting. Um, but I actually ended up building a duplex also with a friend of mine. And then I realized that I didn't really want to build anything after that. Um, I just, I don't know. I just didn't love the construction part of it as much as I thought I would. And if I was going to do construction, I would almost like rather have been so far removed if it was like a large tower or something like that, that I didn't really have to look at the nuances, but that kind of stuff. I just, I didn't know anything about construction. I still don't. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm very invested in real estate, but there's many different facets to real estate. So you don't need to know them all. But you eventually went down to Los Angeles and and took a pretty in-depth course there. Is that right? Yeah, good point. So, yeah, so what I learned about real estate, I kind of learned from really just researching the market and knowing, you know, exactly how much something should cost. But yeah, I did go to Los Angeles. That was a way to be like, hey, I don't, I mean, the truth of that, like, yeah, I did go to UCLA, took a real estate development program down there, focused on real estate investing. Um, Sorry, that was the focus of the program. And, um, it was awesome. Like we got to meet some of the, like Los Angeles' biggest developers, um, very, you know, I don't know, very different than a, than a course that you would get from a typical university, uh, possibly up here in Canada. I mean, we had these people, you know, go into specific questions. It wasn't almost like general about their life. They would really show you how they did the math for a real estate development project that was like, you know, a billion dollars worth. And um, so that, that was very cool and met a lot of cool people through that program. But I think that going to LA was just almost like an escape. I went with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, and I just kind of wanted to get away. I was like, hey, look, we're young, you know, a couple bucks in my pocket. Um, Mm -hmm. If we can go hang out in LA for a year or two um, and I can take this program and, you know, you could be a nurse. I mean, that's, that's really, I think the purpose. And then it was like, hey, I should probably do a program of some sort. And, um, you know, actually learn while you hang out. And and I did really want to become a real estate developer at the time. So it was, so yeah, that, that's what happened. You mentioned that your now wife worked as a, a nurse down there. Did you also work while you were in Los Angeles? No. So how it works is you get a couch potato visa is kind of what people called them down there. And you would go down and my wife, so I had a school visa or a student visa and you weren't allowed to work. And my wife could work. And we actually thought about, like, LA is unbelievable. I fell in love with Los Angeles. My wife fell in love with Los Angeles. I don't know if you've been to LA, but mm-hmm. um, it is very cool. And if you get some time, like, we had over a year over there to explore. And it was very, very cool. I, my dream is to go back and, you know, get a, get a house on the water. That, that would be my <laughs> dream. Um, but in terms of working, I couldn't work because I didn't have this visa. Now, I really wanted to work. I didn't want to work. But um, everyone in L.A. is so obsessed with becoming a star. And, and it eats at you and it's unbelievable. Like I would be in this real estate development program. We're learning how to, you know, develop these high rises and people would still be going to like auditions and stuff. And I would be just 
be like, oh my God, like this is crazy. And look, like I love acting. I love actors. I think everybody does. And I'm sure at some point in your life, everyone wanted to be an actor. And so when you're there, you're like, oh man, it's almost like being in, you know, Fort McMurray during the oil boom. Um, this, that just what everyone did was, was they were actors and they run shows. So I was like, oh man, can I become an actor too? And, um, they were like, oh yeah, you could, you can come on set or you could try to audition. Like I'm going to this show. I already have a part. Maybe you can go on. And I was like, oh man, if nothing else, this is going to be humor for sure. This is going to be hilarious. <laughs> um, so, but I was really, I was like all in for a minute there. I thought I was, you know, I was going to make it. And, um, <laughs> they were like, but you have to have a social security number. And I was like, oh man, I'm Canadian. I don't have one. I only have the student visa. And then someone was like, Hey, but if you work at UCLA, you'll be able to get one. And then there was a whole bunch of nuances that you can only work at UCLA if you had that social security number. Anyway, I applied for janitorial and catering and catering was the first one to call me back. And I went there and I schmoozed them and I said, Hey, look, you know, you got to hire me. I love catering. I need this job. Um, you know, I was a caterer. I dreamed of becoming a caterer. God knows what I said. Um, anyway, I got the job and I got the SSN pretty quick. I think like within two weeks, I must have had one, which is pretty cool because now if I go back to the US, I still think that I can use this social security number if I ever needed one. Um, and so I used that number to actually apply to go. I don't know. Sorry that we've uh, we've gone off topic. But anyway, I used that number to pick up this acting job that I never ended up getting, but I at least got it, got an opportunity to try to get it with a social security number. And, um, anyway, it could really wrap you up Los Angeles, like fast, like you go there and everyone's like, Oh man, it's so easy. This person, you know, became an actor like three weeks. You're like, Holy shit. You know, I'm going to become an actor too. And then you realize like, wait a second, I'm like 30. Um, I've got a lot of gray hair, you know, receding hairline. I'm not going anywhere in this acting space. <laughs> and um, I mean, the truth is, and, and it kind of teaches you something down there about acting or anything is that, you know, maybe I could have, yeah, and I, this isn't even about acting. This is about like pursuing any dream. That's very kind of like far reaching to you at that time is that maybe you could have, and maybe I could have stayed there, for example, for like 15 years and you would have got a role or, or maybe it wouldn't have been that long. But the truth is that, you know, the opportunity cost of pursuing that was almost too high. So it's almost like the opposite advice of like following your dreams, because I was like, hey, man, like I've got, you know, all this entrepreneurial, you know, passion that I want to pursue. So I went and pursued that instead because I thought it was easier. So I, I don't know what what you want to make of that but um it would just like the opportunity cost of really pursuing something like that would just be um you know it would it would be a waste for me i felt so if you put in all that time to get a job catering and did you only go to one interview like that was or casting call that was it and then you just called it quits well it was supposed to be a lot easier i was supposed to kind of like almost like get the gig cuz i knew the person so i ended up going to geez, I can't even remember. Maybe it was like two or three tops. And, and I don't even know how many of my friends know about this. Now I'm revealing it on, on your, you know, your podcast here. Um, but it, for some reason I was always embarrassed and I, and I couldn't get past it. I mean, you're sitting there in a chair and all these people that, you know, maybe have a lot of experience or maybe they just look strange or something sitting next to you and you're like, oh my God, like, what am I doing? And I just, I honestly just, I must have not had the skin for it that I thought I did. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it is a very cool city and it's the most diverse city I've ever seen. And um, 
And, and, and I really did it too, because I was like, Hey, if you could become a better public speaker and not get so anxious and, you know, maybe, you know, all those lessons and all those like, you know, acting, um, auditions that you go on make you so uncomfortable that, that I almost took, I I was proud of it. You know, I'd come home and it would be a disaster probably my audition, but you were almost like proud. You're almost like shaking. You were nervous. Like you did something so weird. At least it was weird to me. I'm sure people do a lot of weirder things. Um, (laughs) but, but anyway, it made me feel uncomfortable, which I think kind of gives you confidence when you go into uncomfortable situations later, obviously. So anyway, that, that was that. Yeah, I think there's a, a great lesson there that um, sometimes, sometimes overcoming those kind of seemingly smaller insecurities or or kind of smaller, uh, strange kind of situations that it actually does help you overcome some of the bigger things, whether that's entrepreneurship or um, or public speaking or or whatever that kind of challenges that you've got to overcome. Um, and Dan, I want to turn to another transition point here. And a transition point in your life where, like, you've sold the first business, you've done the auto capital thing, you've started on this real estate path, but you've started Honest Door, which, as we know, is um, similar to Zillow. And it's, it's um, you're all about big data and real estate and providing consumers with the data that they need to make informed decisions. And um, I've been using your platform a whole bunch recently given the market conditions and I've just been absolutely loving it. So I want to just thank you for all the work that you've put into it. And I know it's going to be just such a valuable product for folks out there, but to get back to that transition point, like I want to dig deeper and and I'm hoping that maybe we can learn something from the process that you went through to say, okay, I've done these two things. I've done Bellinet media. Now I've done auto capital. Now what is my next step? So what did that research process look like for you? Because you, I'm sure you had a thousand options out there. How did you narrow it down to big data and real estate and coming up with Honest Door? Sure. Um, that kind of falls into, hey, you know, does an idea smack you right in the face or do you go and look for it? Like what's the aha moment when you want to start something? And and I went out and looked for it. Um, it might, might smack some people right in the face, but I really think that you've got to research it. I researched a number of different industries and I remember having someone tell me, Hey, you know, you're so, you did fine in the digital media space. I mean, why don't you go back there because you're going to be overvalued there and you're going to be undervalued somewhere else. And, um, and I actually did go into digital media again, but we don't have to get into that. Um, but what brings me into real estate is I, I, I felt like I had an edge. I already, took a real estate development program. I had a few developments under my belt. I owned some real estate. Um, I really felt like I knew what I was doing and I knew the problems that existed there. Um, you know, I, God knows, I probably didn't know anything, but I, I felt like there was a few problems that I understood that were a problem for me. And, um, but I really researched it. Like, I mean, I wanted to make a documentary. Maybe that was part of my LA brain thinking. Um, (laughs) But I wanted to, I had a whole bunch of different um, ideas and all of them I thought were were awesome. But then I was like, hey, I should probably, and maybe now that, you know, we've had this conversation and realized maybe I'm more conservative than you think, but I just kind of felt like, hey, I have an edge here and I think you need to explore that edge. It was, again, kind of like about opportunity cost with me. Like, yeah, I could maybe go make a documentary, but 
I know nothing about making a documentary or maybe this idea is ridiculously stupid. Um, but I knew there was an issue with real estate and it was apparent that I had an edge. And so that is why I think I started to pursue real estate and really researching it more heavily. So you knew the real estate piece and you knew some of these big problems. What were some of those big problems? Some of the big problems were that, you know, when I was acquiring some of the real estate is that no one knew anything. And I would literally go and knock on someone's door and be like, hey, um, I'd like to buy your home and I'll pay you more. And they're like, pay me more? Why? And I was like, hey, look, I'm you know, going to compile a couple of properties here. There might be a future LRT. Maybe I'll redevelop something here. Um, and they're like, okay, you know, possibly if you're going to pay me more. And I was like, hey, and you didn't have to use a real estate agent. So easy. And, and people really connected to that. Um, but I kind of almost felt bad or weird after doing a whole bunch of these transactions just because I felt like I could have said anything. They didn't really know what their home was worth. They were trusting me. Um, you know, I don't think I ever screwed anybody over, but it was just that there was like, how do you sell something that you work your entire life towards and you have no idea what it's worth? And the only way to find out what it's worth is to invite someone else who's motivated to sell it for you as fast as they can to price that property. Um, there was like that to me was a huge disconnect. I'm not necessarily solving that yet with Honest Door. Um, but I just thought it was weird that, hey, no one even knew what the house next door to them. I mean, people do know prices. They know the prices that are sold on the MLS because everyone knows a real estate agent. Um, but to a lot of other people, they don't know a real estate agent or it's not that easy to get that information. And, and it's not that easy to do your own homework with the, with the data that you give them. And so that was a big fundamental problem that there was no transparency in the industry and it was all locked up by agents. And, uh, and look, I, I have agents that are friends and I still really believe in some agents. Um, but that to me was a fundamental problem. Another fundamental problem that I had with it was that the transactions or the, the cost to transact was, was very high. And if you take the statistic of, I think, most Canadians or even most Americans put down right around 5% to purchase their first home. So what that means is that 5%, you know, on call it a $500,000 property, it's 25,000. So the, this person or this couple would work years to accumulate this $25,000, $25,000 after tax, you know, I'm sure all of these people worked very, very hard for that 5% is what I'm getting at. And then if life, you know, throws a curveball and you need to move to another city or you lost your job and you need to sell, or you don't like the area or whatever, the fact that you're so tied in and now you can't sell unless you, you literally spend that same $25,000 again on, on agents, on lawyers, on, you know, fixing up your house or, or whatever it is, is it was just sad to me. And I kind of thought that, you know, those were a few of my passions that drove me to it. So what's your vision for honest or in kind of a, a big picture sense? Well, I can't give away all my secrets here, but um, <laughs> my mission, I think, I mean, we've, we're, we're exploring so many different things with honest or, and, um, and people like the platform. So there's almost two sides to it that I can get into. There's a B2C side and a B2B side. Um, but on the B2C side, I mean, our first goal, and I didn't even know if this was going to be a business. I thought it was going to be Robinhood. I was going to release all the sold data across Edmonton or all the sold data across Alberta. And I would let people kind of have at her and we would make a, 
honest door price for every home, kind of like Zillow did back in the day with their Zestimate. And we would just create this price and people would at least have a starting point on what their home was worth so they couldn't be taken advantage of. And if for some reason they thought our honest door price was not accurate um, or we had made a mistake or something, then they could use all the data points on what their neighbors sold their homes for. So we literally did that and it took a lot of time and it took a lot of money and, and we put it all out there and it turned out that people were very interested and kept back, coming back to our site. And they really wanted that information. Like there was a massive thirst for that information. Um, so that really drove us. So now I want that same feeling that I got when we did this for, you know, Edmonton. I wanted that to be kind of countrywide. Um, and then maybe we'll work on fixing the transaction part after we do that. You spoke about like the honest door price or, or the Zestimate, for example. So we all know, I think, anybody that has kind of a passing interest in real estate, that there's a whole lot of factors that go into <clears throat> pricing a home. But I'm wondering if you can kind of talk at a, at a higher level, what kind of data do you use in estimating the price of a home? So we have a lot of data on our site. Um, you know, machine learning is such a big word and such a big buzzword in AI. I mean, we've created so many different models and we try to perfect this thing. Um, but the reality of it is it's not perfect. And and I'm not sure when we're going to have a perfect model. I mean, we're trying to get better at it. And, um, you know, we probably need to invest more in our data science team. And um, But we're so... Like it is, it is already like doing a phenomenal job. I think right now it's it's on par with zero or Zillow's error rate that has like you know billions and billions of dollars to throw it at these data, wow. data scientists. So the the fact that we're getting so close with it um, is a huge check mark. I mean, everything goes in there, you know. And I would say that the reason why we're able to is because we simply have better data than everybody else. I think these models can be made. Um, a number of different ways too. Um, and, and people are now putting in pictures. We haven't done that. I mean, now they're, you know, analyzing when the renovation was done on your property, all these different things. But I think our data, so what's crucial to understand is that we not only have MLS data or not even MLS data, but we have every single transaction ever. Um, so what that means is that, you know, a real estate agent would only have MLS data. Um, but we have, you know, properties that were bought and sold between private individuals or a builder would sell to a private individual without an agent. So we have all of those other transactions. And so that really gives us a better scope. And that number is actually bigger because before people would say, hey, you know, real estate agents take 99% of the entire market share of transactions. But now that we have the data, that's actually not true. A lot of people transact independently. And I think that number is going to go up. Where do you get that data from? Like for me, I'm somebody that is craving data, like I think many folks out there, especially in the coronavirus world that we're living in right now, that that just increases that uncertainty. And and I know that I track inventory and days on market and um, you know, average sale price and listings and sales, et cetera, all of that kind of information. But you're talking about historical data. Where does that come from? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. We also don't reveal too much of our secret sauce. Whenever anyone asks us that, we just kind of say we're like, "Hey, this is our lemon meringue pie. I hope you've enjoyed it, but we're not telling you our recipe." Um, 
but I mean, look, we work extremely hard and we take, we take data wherever we can get it. We have users submitted data. Um, you know, we, we don't really reveal all of our sources for the data. Um, but it is a mountain of it and it's very difficult and we get it in its very raw form, which it's like, it's not connected to addresses. It's not connected to anything. And, um, yeah, we really need to get to work on, on cleaning it. And it takes a, it takes a long time to do it, but we don't, we don't really reveal all of our sources, but we know it's very complete and accurate. What about trends moving forward? Like, do you, the current price estimate, is that just given market conditions? Do you, um, do you do any forecasting as well? Is that something that mm-hmm. is going to exist, currently exists? Yeah, we are going to do forecasting. We're going to do the one year out price and we've been actually doing it in-house. We've been testing mm-hmm. it to see how we've been doing on it, just even like on a rolling basis for six months um, because we can kind of see which neighborhoods are catching fire and which ones are getting more transactions or where there's more permits uh, and where there's more uh, development permits specifically. Um, and so you, you kind of can see which areas are really picking up steam. And, and so, I mean, the goal of this is that, hey, we want to make sure that you get a good investment. So before it was like pricing your house, but now it's like, hey, if you're going to buy a house and you're going to use our site, um, we want to make sure these people know the difference. Like some people are like, hey, I want to live in this area no matter what. My mom lives there and I want to live there. Um, that's a great reason and, and you know, good on you. You should live there. But we really want to explain that, hey, had you bought in a different area, you would have made more money. And we're going to kind of show that on the timeline. And I think that's going to be important to a lot of different people. Some people think that the most expensive area must be the best area. And it is for a number of different reasons. Um, But we want to make sure dollar for dollar people know that, hey, this is where we think you should put your money. Um, It's all based on, you know, our data analytics team. and, And I believe in it. So. Is there one or two or a handful of data points that you think make the most difference in a potential investment? So if one home like if one home has these five data points, it is a mu- or two data points, it's a much better investment than a home that is in the next neighborhood or down the street. It's almost that what you do with the data becomes most important. So if we're able to pull off this cool data analytic play where we could actually predict the house value a year from today or even five years from today because some of these development projects don't get built and we can kind of see what happened to prices around certain type of different developments. Um, That's almost a more important data point that we've created in-house rather than saying, hey, this home last sold for, you know, in 2008 for X amount of dollars. Um, I think most people are pretty thirsty for that sold price. I think they really like knowing what everyone's home sold for. Um, and, and so I think that's probably the biggest data point that people use on our website um, for their own sake, if that kind of answers your question. I'm not sure if it did. Well, I just want to know how much my friends paid for all their houses. Okay, right. that's my number one most important thing. Hey, that's a big deal because some <laughs> people go out and they lie 
either that they paid more or they paid less, just depending on their personality. And it's really funny because you could literally be in someone's condo or someone's home and, and get our and, and literally open up honestore.com and and go right into that or unit, like find it right on our map, and it'll tell you what they paid for it. And it'll tell you what the honest store price was. And it'll tell me, you know, what permit they just got. Maybe they just got a hot tub permit that's they're gonna put it up a hot tub. <laughs> so it's it's very intrusive in that way. And, uh, and some people don't like that part, but it's, uh, it's public information and I think is very valuable public information so that people don't get screwed. But some people are still very against it being out there. But to me, it's an asset that needs to exist. So the arbitrage opportunity ends in a way. I mean, if you're going to become a developer um, and you overpaid on a certain property, like that doesn't matter, right? Because you, you're going to create value elsewhere. But for all the regular people just, you know, buying and selling a home, I don't, think that they should be screwed, right? I think if the market goes up, you should make more and that's fine. But I, I don't think people should be left behind. Uh, and I hate to reference another past guest on the podcast, but there's a guy named Alex Rucker and he is, um, he worked his way up from, he's been many things, a lawyer, a Navy pilot, but he was also started with the Toronto Raptors basketball team as, as um, an analytics guy doing um, data analysis and, and, um, big data stuff. And then now he's the executive vice president of basketball operations with the 76ers. Anyway, why I'm telling you this is that he's very involved in that big data world and they use big data to analyze every single player in the NBA, their own players, different plays that they should be running, every high school and college kid out there. Um, and so I'm just fascinated by that world of big data. And I hate to use that buzzword, but if if I can ask you, Dan, in your world of, of real estate, um, where is this world in 10 years? Yeah, that's a good question. And I always hate <laughs> when someone <laughs> answers it so quickly and so nonchalant. Um, and that's kind of, you know, was my irritation, I think, with some agents as well, like, is because people would ask them that. I mean, people love to ask, you know, is this neighborhood going to go up? And I know you asked real estate in 10 years and we can go to that, but people always ask what's going to happen to this area or what's going to happen to this house. And and you've never heard from one single person trying to sell a property to say that, you know, I, I don't actually think it's going to do anything. I think it's going to stay flat or it's probably <laughs> going to go down in a couple of years. Um, like no one would ever say that. Even if COVID was hitting and oil was at $5, no one would say that. Everyone's like, you know what? I think it's going to recover. Why? And uh, no one would tell you why, but I just also, and I know that's kind of getting into something else, but it's very hard. And as you know, it's very hard to predict. I mean, the smartest people in the world aren't going to predict these kind of things. No one could predict COVID. No one, maybe some people could predict very low oil prices. Um, but the real estate space is changing and it's changing. And I don't know any more than, than everyone who's you know, involved in real estate, who's reading a lot and really seeing these trends change in front of us. Um, you know, you see all these headlines all the time, I mean, death to retail, you know, everyone's going to be renting their properties. No one's going to be buying homes. I mean, that could all happen. And, um, but to be able to predict it, I'm not sure, but if I had to predict something, I think that <coughs> I've been saying that less people are going to be owning homes and they're not. Um, but I do think in a world further down the line, less people will own homes. I, I don't know that I truly believe that. Um, I don't know. I just don't. I get some people always own homes, 
But then if you think that a population eventually rises and it becomes more dense and real estate becomes more expensive, that real estate is always owned by the same people. Like if you look at certain areas of Manhattan, I mean, there's literally swaths of land owned by like five different developers um, and they and they own every building and they own every townhome that's like millions and millions of dollars. So what I'm trying to say is that um, eventually it just becomes like a hoarding game for the rich. And I think the rich are going to have more and more properties and that everyone else is going to be renting them. What do you think coronavirus means for the real estate world? Do you think that that is coming out of this going to be a negative on the housing market generally in Canada? Yeah. I mean, coronavirus is not cool. Um, <laughs> you, like you would have to think that it's going to be negative, right? I mean, how do you think that it'll be positive? Um, but again, in the data, we're not seeing that that it's been negative yet, even though I like to be a skeptic and say, hey, you know, it's going to be negative. Look at all this unemployment. Um, we haven't seen prices drop. We saw listings have gone down. The number of listings have gone down. But the actual price that they were transacting for um, was really right in line from where it should have been. Um, maybe Corona is going to catch up to us, like the effects of the coronavirus on the economy. And maybe we'll see it 12 months from now. But but I think it's so unknown, man. I, I don't know how people are predicting. I mean, Corona's not gone. And just because they open more things doesn't mean that the coronavirus is gone. And maybe there's going to be a second wave or a third wave. And so I, I don't know where the end is in sight. I just know that it's going to cause, you know, havoc. And um, But we haven't seen it in the data yet, but I also think it's too early. I want to turn away from forcing you into awful predictions that no one should be forced <laughs> to answer. Um, and turn back to the business for a second and, and just ask you, like, obviously, you've had a lot of success in business in your life. But I imagine there's also challenges as you're trying to start something as big as what you're starting with Honest Door. And so I'd like to pose a question to you, like, what's been hard? What's been harder than you thought? Um, man, everything's hard when you're starting a business. I kind of feel like, for me anyway, and I don't know if this is true, but I'd already done a couple of things, happy at where I'm at. And then now to be like 35 and some people would be like, oh, that's old, man. And some people are going to be like, oh my God, 35. I wish to be 35. I could start any business at 35. So <laughs> I don't know why I'm thinking this way, but um, you know, I've got two kids at home now, two little kids. And there's so many other things that, not other things, but so many other things that you, that you can do. Um, but you still need to kind of, you know, go back to your business. And my business is very much my passion. I work on it every single day. Um, but it just gets hard as time goes on and you, and you kind of get older and you appreciate life that much more that, you know, especially for me, I, I don't want to sit in my garage all day long, just kind of grinding away at my business. But I do think that I have a pretty good chance here. And I think we've got really good traction and we've got a really good team. We've got a really good investors. And so I kind of, um, I, I'm all in, right. And I owe it to myself. I feel like I worked hard, but I also owe it to everybody else. That's kind of, um, wants this to succeed. Um, but the hardest part is like, I thought going into this, I would be able to, first of all, I thought everything would be faster. I thought we had already scaled to the rest of the country and, and we haven't. Um, but I also thought maybe like raising money. I had never raised money and I always hated the idea of asking people for money. Just like naturally, no one wants to ask people for money. And now you're like, 
like, Hey, like I'm starting this business. Um, but I, I thought, I thought that process would actually be easier for some reason, because I was like, Hey, look, I've done all these great things. And some other shit out over there has done nothing. And he was able to raise. <laughs> that was me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I was thinking that this was going to be easy. And then I go in there and everyone's like, nah, I don't know, man, your business sucks or that sucks or whatever. Um, and then I was just like, wow, that's hard. And I didn't really feel like and I kind of wanted to raise money. I'd done it without um, raising before uh, or traditionally raising like through a VC. And I kind of wanted to do it the, you know, VC route and kind of get these, you know, higher valuations at every round. I kind of wanted that. I, I kind of, you know, thought that a lot of people went through that and I hadn't gone through that. And um, anyway, it was a lot harder and they ask you a lot of questions. And especially in today's world, everyone wants you to prove everything out. So they, so you're pretty much de-risk the whole thing for them. And uh, I'm happy that we ended up hopefully de-risking the whole thing. Um, certainly nothing's ever de-risked. Um, but it was a good enough investment. But I just thought that maybe raising money would be a lot easier. Um, and it was, uh, and not to say that it was hard. I mean, we were able to do it. And, um, but it was, it was annoying. It, it was a pain. <laughs> You're somebody, again, that's started and, it, you know, found success in three businesses. And so I'd be interested to get your perspective on what kind of advice would you want to pass on to young entrepreneurs that are maybe starting down that path or thinking about starting down that path? Really, I think the only advice is don't take one person's advice. Um, I haven't really thought about this answer. I just kind of started blurting it out. But, um, <laughs> you know, if you trust your uncle and he's been successful, I mean, take his advice um, and go and get like 20 more opinions. I mean, it's kind of like a doctor's opinion at that point, like get as many as you can, because I think that you'll know in your heart if it's a good idea and that you're not faking that it's a good idea. If you talk to enough people and then you talk to enough people that actually know the space you're in. Um, because talking to someone who's been successful in the sock business about the real estate business, um, you know, they may have good advice and you should listen to it just generally. Um, but it may not be that relevant, but at the same time, who knows? Um, but the truth is, yeah, just talk to as many people as you can and don't let other people. And I know everyone's like, Hey, don't let other people stand in your way, but it's kind of true. Like if I had, um, like not giving up is important. And one way to think about not giving up is that, let's pretend I went out to raise money and I couldn't raise money from the person that I thought I was going to raise money from. And all of a sudden they said, no, I'm, I'm not doing it for a number of different reasons. You know, are you going to tell your kids that, Hey, you know, I had this great idea and I didn't do it because Johnny boy over there who I believed in my whole life, he was my best friend and he didn't invest in my business. So now I have no business. So are you really going to let one person or a couple people um, dictate the path of your entire life? Obviously not. And so that's why I think persistence is important. What do you think you would focus on in a hypothetical world where you only had two hours to focus on on a store a week? Jeez, that's a good question. Um, if I only had two hours, what would I do? I don't know. I mean, I, I get into the details too much. Um, you know, probably as a CEO, you should probably get out of the details a bit more. Um, I, I think I would probably continue on just staying on the phone with people is kind of my strength. So I meet and chat with a lot of people, like a lot of people throughout the week. <laughs> and, um, I probably would use those two hours to build up more 
strategy and future direction for the company from those people because the people are unbelievable. I mean, you got to treat people well and talk to as many people because not only do you learn from every single person you speak with, but, um, but they can introduce you to a, a number of different people or they'll tell you their strategies and how they made their particular business succeed. And hopefully that's in your particular niche. Um, so yeah, I would definitely just, just keep talking to folks. <laughs> well, that's um, great advice. And I think parallels the conversation we had earlier about Tate and, and how he uh, learned about the HR technology space is, is just by kind of chatting with folks. And, and so I'm grateful that, that you've, been chatting with me and, and passing on your knowledge. Um, I want to kind of wrap things up here in the next little bit and and ask you about your drive. You you are somebody that you've achieved really remarkable things, man. You're 35 years old. You're on your third business. Um, you found a lot of success in the world. And and I'd just be interested to know. I know it's a hard question, but do you have some idea of where that drive to continue pushing comes from? I, and I know it's cliche, but it's not money in the sense that, you know, I'm going to be able to buy all these things. Um, like I'm truly passionate about what we're doing right now. Um, and I know that the current system is flawed. Um, and so I really want to fix that system and, and maybe that's egotistical, right. And maybe that's how I, you know, kind of say that I, I did it or, or I made it. Um, there's actually a famous quote that I really like that I'll, <laughs> that I'll mention that I just heard from a guy from Andreessen Horowitz. Um, I think it was a guy named Alex Ruperl said it about a, a, I think a playwright. I think his name was George Bernard Shaw. And it was that all professions are conspiracy against the lady. Um, so what that means is that all professions are a conspiracy against kind of like, like a lay person. And they're built to screw over um, regular people um, that aren't in that particular profession. And I think, and I truly believe that all all professions are built that way. I think I was talking to a real estate lawyer, or no, I don't think I, I was talking to a real estate <laughs> a lawyer um, just last week. And I was like, "Hey, look, we're going to give you this like mountain of business. Can we get a referral?" And he was like, "Hey, I'd love to give you a referral, but you know, as the law states." Um, if you're not a lawyer, I can't give you a referral or something like that, um, which is hilarious. But that aside, there's also certain states, I think, in the United States, or maybe there's even some provinces here in Canada, that if you wanted to get a rebate on your home, let's say you did most of the work, and maybe your agent in that particular situation didn't do that much, um, you would ask them to be like, hey, um, you know, can I get a, a $500 rebate on my home? And they would say, no, I mean, it's absolutely illegal for a real estate agent to be giving rebates to, uh, you know, sellers on their home. So what I'm trying to say is that that very much exists in a lot of industries. And, and obviously, a lot of people get that. Um, but I think it's, I think it's important to go after those industries. Um, and this is kind of my passion. So I'd be interested to know what the if you had to reflect on the last year, what do you think is the most important thing that you've learned in that period? You know, I, I put together a team for the first time. That that was pretty cool. Um, and then hopefully we're, we've got a good team to succeed. But um, I, I just felt like this was an industry specifically for I'm kind of making a specific comment um, that 
had a lot of innovation, but it all kind of went back to anyone that challenged the status quo of like how a transaction was completed. Like you need two real estate agents and that was it. And there was a graveyard of companies um, that tried to do it. And so I was, even with the whole transparency thing, you know, we kind of just went all in on it and we didn't know that we were going to be successful or not. We just said, Hey, um, we're going to release all this data and, you know, we hope to be successful and, and it was almost like the hell with it. Like, I'm not sure that we're going to succeed or what we're going to do. Um, but it was a big deal for us to gather and clean and do all that we did with the data and, and release it out there into the public. And people went nuts. Like they were like, Oh my God, I didn't know this was, you know, possible. Thank you so much. Or, you know, they were, they were amazed that they could see all this stuff. And, um, I think that was the biggest thing was that it, we were just, I don't even remember your question, Jared, but we were so happy to have done what we did, even without a clear cut plan at the time. And I would suggest that to anyone who's got a serious passion to do something is that, you know, go out and do it. Because even if we had failed, um, the sold data and all the data that we had put out there on everyone's property across the province, millions and millions of properties, uh, that was always going to be out there online. And, and in some weird, small way, the world, you know, in Alberta had changed forever. You know, I mean, it sounds really weird, but to me, uh, it did change forever, um, even if there was no business there. So anyway, I just kind of urge all other entrepreneurs to just kind of take that leap of faith because we did and it worked out. <laughs> At that time, do you remember, did you have a plan for that second phase? Like, did you just release that data to say, I want everybody to have access to this, even though it's cost me an absolute ton of money, I'm sure yeah. to put out there. Yeah. Or did you say, we're putting this out there. If it goes well, then step two is this. Yeah. Like we released it, honestly, Jared, early days when we were thinking about releasing it, there was no plan. There was no plan that this was going to be a business. We were just going to spend time. And it was also my co-founder who spent a lot of time and, and I spent a lot of money and we were just going to release it. And that was the plan. And that's how passionate I was. I was just like, Hey, this is crazy that all this is locked up and let's release it and the hell with it. Um, there wasn't like, you know, we're going to scale and we're going to be three people, then five, then 10. Um, we're going to get BC funding. It, there wasn't a thought of that. Like, of course, in my mind, I was doing that, but I wasn't like, Hey, if we do this strategically like this, we'll be able to like, it was just like, you know, fuck it. Let's just put it out there. And, um, and, and hopefully it'll work out. And, 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 and it did work out because people went there and they were so appreciative and passionate of what we were doing that that was already like some hurdle of success. Um, the next step, I was like, certainly let's try to turn this into a business now, which is what we're trying to do. Um, but I think in some weird way, like I think we've kind of achieved what we wanted to achieve, but that's only at a, such a small level. We really want to make that you know available everywhere. Well, uh, a huge congratulations because I know it has changed my life. and. Um... Yeah, I'm just so interested to continue following the developments there and in real estate in general, but more specifically with Honest Door. Um, I want to ask you specific to your niches. So um, owning a business, entrepreneur, being an entrepreneur and real estate, like are there books that have really resonated with you that you feel like you just couldn't live without? Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. And it also goes into... Um, something else that I kind of wanted people to feel is that I don't read a ton of books and I also 
and, and maybe that's easy to notice because maybe I don't use a lot of big words. Um, <laughs> um, and I also felt like I did ever fit the mold, right? I would always go to different events or something and everyone would be like, oh, did you like read this really cool entrepreneurial book? Or, hey, um, you know, how, did, how does this work on a cap table? Or they have all these terms, all these people they have met. Um, and they really followed the mold on what you should do as an entrepreneur. Um, or like, you know, they would listen to thousands of hours of particular podcasts they like. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That probably does give you an advantage. Um, but I wanted to say is that don't fall into the trap that if you don't know some weird abbreviation or if you didn't read some book or you don't recognize the face of some famous founder that just raised $100 million, I mean, who cares? Um, and so I'll get into the book that I am reading. But um <laughs> So that's all I kind of wanted to say is that I never felt like I needed that. I always felt like I kind of knew what I was doing a little bit on my own and that I didn't need um, the advice of other people as much it, when it related to something as specific as like books or the journey itself. Um, don't get me wrong. I do read and I think it's important to read and I think you get a lot out of it. Um, but just don't follow the mold as much as you think. Anyway, um, I honestly just read autobiographies a lot. Um, and I read like a lot of like, or I used to read a lot of self-help books. Now I don't have time to read as much as I would like. Um, but there isn't a book that stood out to me that was going to be like, oh my God, thank God I read this book. I'm going to crush it. I did read a lot of the cliche <laughs> books when I was growing up, like, uh, seven habits of highly effective people and stuff like that. And I actually read a really funny one that I remember people came over to my house one time and, and made fun of me. I think it was like under my pillow and I was probably like 13 and everyone was like, Oh my God. We, I think it was called how to influence like, Oh man, it was by Dale Carnegie. How to win friends and influence people. And it was like, you know, level, there was like step one, like smile a lot or something like that. <laughs> and I someone came into my room and I was just like oh, mortified when they found that book and made fun of me um, because it has <laughs> such a terrible title. It almost makes yes. it sound how to manipulate friends to like you or something like that and uh anyway it was a terrible title and i thought i think it needs a new title but that was a good book and i think that early on taught me a lot so um i think there's a lot of books that you need to read early on to kind of form your mind and how to be like approachable and how to approach people and things like that um but no there's not necessarily i think you got to read what you're passionate about and then people will kind of like you hopefully <laughs> as you go on but i am reading a book that's really cool um by richard williams which is a uh, serena and Venus williams's mm. dad on how he, uh, on, on his life and how he, um, you know, managed to have these girls both become world champions, which was pretty amazing. <laughs> how to win friends and influence people. Step one, be cute. Step two, buy them lunch. And that's pretty <laughs> much it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that book is uh, something else. So you spoke about not following a mold. And I, I really think that that resonates with me. Um, because I, I very much don't follow that mold, but um, you spoke about how to kind of gain an advantage. And so you didn't follow that mold, but what gave you an advantage? I think honestly, early on, I was always infatuated with the business. So, you know, I don't want to say if you're like a late bloomer, don't go into business or anything like that. Um, just really talk to a lot of people. But 
I felt like I always had an advantage because I was always like in business. Like, I mean, I always did weird things. Like, you know, my friend and I actually the same friend that we did the digital billboards with, I mean, we started like a window washing company in university and, and yeah, a lot of people do a lot of entrepreneurial things throughout university. I mean, that was ours, um, which was also a really cool moneymaker. So if you're, uh, <laughs> if you're young or you're out of work, you should, uh, you know, go, uh, go wash some windows. Um, it was actually really cool. You'd literally go knock on the door of people the night before you go out and wash your windows. So let's say you knock, knock, knock for like two hours. That's what we did from seven 30 to about nine 30 in the summers. We'd go around and we'd say, Hey, you know, we're university students. Um, <laughs> for some reason we thought that would work. Um, we were <laughs> university students and we're, this was our pitch. This is literally what, our, what we would say. And we're in your area washing windows. We were obviously not in their area yet washing windows. We hoped that we were going to be, um, <laughs> uh, and we're coming, uh, tomorrow. And uh, if you guys are interested in ha getting your windows washed, um, you know, please let us know and we'll fit you in. And most people would you'd be like, yeah, okay. And uh, that's literally what we would do. And we would collect like 200 bucks a house. So you could do five houses for $1,000 in cash, like every single day. Um, it was, it was, it was, it was cool. But what I, what I kind of mean is that I kind of tried everything from like the weirdest, most uncomfortable businesses. Even that, that was door to door. I mean, there was probably like a couple of weeks where I sold paintings a door to door with another friend of mine. And, you know, there was other times where I sold peepholes with another friend of mine. That one didn't last very long. A peephole is like, <laughs> what, you know what a peephole is? Like when you can't yeah. see through the door. Um, we didn't really realize that they could also probably just look through the window that isn't going through the door. Um, <laughs> but I think it was like a friend of our family's idea for us. But anyway, we tried it and I, I think we only sold one people. Um, but all those weird things combined. And I think I sold Cutco, not I think, I always say I think. I, I sold Cutco knives. Um, again, like really weird businesses and all that crap, you know, really gives you an edge when you do that stuff early on. So I kind of thought that was my edge. Um, and of course, you know, I was obsessed with all the movies and books that had to do with like, you know, ma massive success. I mean, my, my mind has changed since then, but I think that gave me the, the hunger early on to want to do what I do. You mentioned that you sold Cutco knives, but really Cutco knives sell themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You sound like you maybe have sold a few Cutco knives. <laughs> Just a proud owner. <laughs> oh man, Cutco knives. That place is a scam. Um, <laughs> you know, I think they make you pay like seven hundred dollars for the for the kit before you go oh, yeah. sell it. So I think again, yeah, I had to go back to my parents and ask them for this money. And then of course you don't realize, but the only people that you could sell to who are gonna buy seven hundred dollar knives are obviously like, you know, people with some money and who are, you know, maybe friends with like your parents or something at the time. Um, so then all you do is like exploit your parents with like peer pressure that like you need to like own this like $400 knife. <laughs> so, so it was really strange, but, um, but you do learn from all that stuff. Right. And um, yeah, but Cutco knives, I do still have a few Cutco knives and they are very good knives. I don't, I still don't think they've broken. So maybe it was all worth it. Well, the last question was about what gives you an advantage. And I want to finish off with a question that we ask every week at our, our Strive meetings, which is what's holding us back from success and, and kind of getting some blind spot feedback from the other individuals in the group. So I want to pose that question to you, Dan. What is something that is holding you back from even higher levels of success? 
Sure. And I'll maybe even just pop into that other question again. I mean, I think what Mm -hmm. also gave me an advantage is like, I was like a constant loser in a way, right? When you do door to door or when you do all of these like weird businesses, um, like you're essentially getting scammed by the company as like one of their pawns. And it takes you years to realize that. But um, like I was so used to losing, right? I was so used to being like, hey, can I have $500 for these knives and not making any money or like selling door to door or like I even sold cars. I think I sold like half a car because the commission was split. (laughs) So I, I literally was just like, like constantly losing and constantly trying. And I know that obviously that's what everyone keeps saying, but like, but it was true. Like I, I just learned to lose like at everything I almost touched, I lost. And so the fact that I got mm-hmm. some success later on was, was great. But um, once you've become like this uh, lifelong loser, um, you can really gain some success because you're just really, really unafraid to try anymore because you know, I'm probably going to lose. And so when you go in and you get some success, it's pretty cool. Um, so that was kind of, I guess, I wanted to add to the other question. And then your new question, what did you say, Jared? Which is what's holding you back from higher levels of success? Oh, yeah. Higher levels of success. Whatever that means to you. It doesn't have to be financial or in the business, in your personal, et cetera. Oh, man. I wish I had a good joke or something for this question. Um, <laughs> higher levels of success. I think that everyone in a way is still kind of scared to fail and it's almost like you need to learn how to win if that makes sense Mm -hmm. and and for a while like yeah until you have some success you almost like don't know how you almost like get so close and you're like ah no i don't know if i should do this it's not gonna work (laughs) and and you kind of run from success and i still think that i'm still you know kind of humble and I think like you just need to put yourself out there and be like, you know, I'm going to be a winner. Like, you know, like some of these Americans that you hear talk, like we're going to destroy every single company and we're going to become the leaders. Like I still think there's some of that, that even as, as Canadians, we need to learn. Um, but that part of me, I still think, you know, even someone's like, Hey, like how big do you want to start your business? <laughs> I'm like, Oh, you know, like having a Canadian business would be great. But then you talk to an American <laughs> and we're like, you know, worldwide domination in two years. Um, so I think that thinking bigger is something that I always uh, not struggle with, but I want to think bigger and I do think bigger, but I think that just kind of taking those bolder, bolder steps and really being like, let's make a Canada wide country fast. And then like, let's go into the U S and let's, um, you know, let's hit some astronomical valuations. I think since like, um, I, I haven't been through it and maybe I've read enough books on it. So maybe you should be reading books on it. It's just, it's just a scary process. Um, yeah. So I think that just not being complacent and uh, just really dreaming a little bit bigger. Dan, I want to thank you so, so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I, I know that you have achieved so many incredible things in, in many different businesses and, and you're somebody that constantly strives to achieve more. And so I'm just grateful that you took the time to sit down with us. And for the listeners out there, If you want to learn more about Dan, you can find him personally on LinkedIn at Dan Belostotsky, which is B-E-L-O-S-T-O-T-S-K-Y. You can also learn more about Honest Door at honestdoor.com. Dan, it has been an honor. Thank you for sitting down with us today. Thanks, Jared. It was great chatting with you. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this episode. 
Please stay tuned for more stories from successful entrepreneurs, artists, influencers, and sports and medical moguls. Please know that I've got your back and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. If you like this episode, then please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also find Strive Accelerator on Instagram at Strive Accelerator. And find show notes and all of our free content on our website at striveaccelerator.com. I always want to hear feedback from listeners, so please shoot me an email at jared at striveaccelerator.ca.